On this week's Brewbound podcast, we sit down with the legendary Fergal Murray, a former Guinness brewmaster who now consults with small breweries and distilleries across the world. During our interview, Fergal talks about some of his international brewing endeavors, the release of the new Fergal Project collaboration with Wachusett Brewing, and the challenges of building a brand on-premise in today's crowded craft beer environment. He also explains why he's bullish on the growth prospects of the emerging non-alcoholic beer segment and discusses the changes to the American beer scene that he's witnessed during his long career in beer. We're also going to share our takeaways from this week's Beer Business Daily Beer Summit and talk about one of our favorite new dive bars for people watching. But before we get to all that, we want to tell you about advertising with Brewbound. There are a variety of ways you can reach Brewbound's industry audience, including through our daily newsletter, which lands in more than 20,000 inboxes across the world. With the purchase of an eBlast, your fully customizable HTML email message will be sent directly to our newsletter subscribers, allowing you to showcase a new product or service or to make an important announcement. Or maybe you'd rather promote your expertise and thought leadership. If so, consider creating a piece of native content that will receive thousands of impressions and live on Brewbound indefinitely. In addition to eBlast and native content on Brewbound.com, there are a variety of ways to engage the Brewbound community through event sponsorship, digital banner ads, job postings, marketplace listings, and even this podcast. For more information, drop us a line over on sales at brewbound.com. That's sales at brewbound.com. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Brewbound podcast presented by BevNet, where we bring you interviews with some of the most well-known figures throughout the beer industry. Today is Thursday, January 31st, and my name is Chris Frenari, the editor of Brewbound. I'm joined by my co-host, fellow Brewbound editor, Justin Kendall. How are you feeling, Chris? Well, I'm feeling like we got to rush out of the Glorietta Bay Inn <laughs> where we're recording today to catch our flight back to Boston. We are out here in San Diego. We attended the Beer Business Daily Summit, Harry's Conference, a well-run event as always, despite the inevitable hiccups that he always seems to run into. I think in New Orleans, it was the hotel burned down or something like that, or somebody started a fire. This time it was a flood. Harry's like... uh, He's a natural disaster. (laughs) he brings natural disasters to every beautiful hotel that he hosts his (laughs) events in. Watch out, breakers. Yeah, the breakers in West Palm Beach next year better uh, batten down the hatches because Harry's coming. Hurricane. No, it it was a great event. He hosted at the Del Coronado. We stay across the street at the Glorietta Bay. So shout out to uh, Claudia and the team here. They always hook us up with a a nice uh, Friends of the Glorietta Bay in discount and Coronado as well. As well. Yes. Thank you, Rick. Yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the Beer Business Daily Summit and some of our takeaways. I mean, there were kind of the usual suspects in terms of presenters and panelists. We heard from you know, Gavin Hattersley at at, uh, Miller Coors, Jim Cook at Boston Beer. And then there were some, you know, new folks that were new to the industry, but we spent pretty much the entire day and a half talking not so much about beer, but 
hard seltzer and hard kombucha and cannabis and basically everything but beer. It's the new reality of these beer conferences is that you spend less and less time talking about beer. But I mean, that just kind of goes to the whole Jim Cook discussion where apparently everything is beer now. Tea, kombucha, seltzer, cider, it's all beer. Yeah, you know, so Jim made this comment that was, you know, I'm not going to get it directly spot on and maybe you have the exact quote, but he was basically a saying that if it takes a ride on a distributor's truck, if it comes out of a, a beer manufacturing facility, it takes a ride on a beer distributor's truck, it's purchased by the beer purchaser at a retailer and consumed by a consumer who regularly purchases beer, the product is effectively a beer product. And it doesn't matter if it's cider or seltzer or hard kombucha or hard tea, he just thinks of it all as beer. That seems to be a new wrinkle for Jim. Yeah. We've talked about this for the last couple of days. It just seems like that's not something that he has done in the past. It's all been craft beer, craft beer, craft beer. And then, you know, he was up on stage and he was talking about, you know, when we crafted this mission statement in 1982, it was to seek long-term growth by offering the highest quality product to beer drinkers. And then he said, it didn't say craft beer. Yeah, so he knew in 1982 that he was long-term not going to be a craft brewer. Is, is that what he's, like, trying to say? I think he had the foresight, he had the crystal ball, and he knew about the seltzer trend and kombucha <laughs> and all this coming down, you know, tea. Soothsayer. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Jim is, you know, I think most people often say that Jim is usually the smartest guy in the room. And I don't disagree, but for me, this particular interview, it really felt like kind of the transformation of Jim from being the flag-waving, indie seal, BA-defined craft brewer champion to kind of like beverage company executive and talking about like, oh, our products and our portfolio and capitalizing on trends. And I mean, he's always sort of talked about that stuff and, you know, they're a publicly traded company, but I don't know, it just felt different to me this time. Like I really felt like he's almost fully embraced his role as a beverage company as opposed to a brewer. And part of that's probably trying to sort of justify the whole BA dropping traditional from its definition. Right. So there's some I mean, of that. And that was like the first thing that he said when he got up there, basically. He yeah. pretty much gave a nod to the BA and was like, yeah, you know, we've been making all sorts of products for many years and this is the natural evolution of the, of the category. It, it's funny too, though, you get a guy like David Walker from Firestone Walker up there and he's the complete opposite. I think he had the quote and he wasn't denigrating Jim or taking a shot. He was just saying we make great beer, we'd make a shitty beverage company. Yeah, they know what their core competency is. It's beer. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, they just recently came out with a hazy IPA and in the press release it was like, you know, something to the effect of like we wanted to make it our way. But it took them a long time to perfect, you know, their version of a hazy IPA. And that's still beer. Like imagine if they were trying to do seltzer or something else. Well, they are doing, I think, a, a rosé beer. Yeah. Which is sort of polarizing, I guess, on Twitter, if you look at some of the more vocal critics, but... The 1%? Yeah, exactly. Vocal minority. Yeah. Well, 
you know, getting back to sort of the original point of we, we spent more time talking about some of these what I'll call non-beer products, even though Jim would disagree with me. There was talk about some new products from both Jim and from Mark Anthony brands with their White Claw. And they're both called Pure, Truly Pure and White Claw Pure. And they're going after this vodka soda occasion. The exact same name, essentially the exact same product. Yeah. And it's basically just neutral, basically no flavor, a neutral yeah. sugar base alcohol, 5% or so. Yep. And then it's meant to emulate a sort of vodka soda and you can pour it over ice, you can pour it on draft and you can squeeze some lime into it. And it's supposed to be a 16 ounce occasion for a vodka soda, replace vodka soda, but with 16 ounces and at 5%. You know, if you can go and you can take away some of the occasions from spirits in that regard, great. But at the same time, if this is going to be a draft product and Jim is sort of the master of this, it's like you're just putting another Boston beverage company, Boston beer company handle on, which ultimately to me means you're sort of just taking away a beer occasion. And you're saying that you're bringing new customers into the category, but are you really? And that's a fair point. I, I think White Claws, they put the picture up on the screen and it was in a can. So at least theirs will be packaged. I'm pretty sure you're right that Jim said it'd be a draft product. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It'll be interesting to see where that goes. And I mean, there's a whole lot of questions about, does it dilute the sort of core white claw and truly brands themselves? Does it create confusion? I don't know. But nonetheless, I mean, I think the idea is kind of a solid one. Like this idea of having no flavor, like the same sort of sparkling seltzer product, but with no flavor. And then you can add the flavors in as a bartender mm-hmm. or whoever. I think that's a, a kind of a cool idea. All right. Two more things before we get to our interview with Fergal Murray that I wanted to touch on from the conference. One was the M&A panel. And the second was, uh, you know, speaking of the seltzers, a new to the beer category player, but not a new to the beverage industry player. And that's Ben Weiss. He founded Buy Beverages, which I think sold for what, a billion and a half to... I think it was 1.7 billion. Okay. Don't want to short him on Excuse on me, yeah. $1.7 $1. billion. <laughs> and that was sold to Dr. Pepper, I believe, Dr. Mm-hmm. Pepper Snapple. And, you know, I think he spent probably a decade or so building that brand before he sold it. And it was essentially, for those who are unfamiliar, it was originally like a coffee fruit, they called it a coffee fruit beverage, but sort of rebranded along the way. It was an antioxidant beverage, low calorie, essentially meant to be a better for you vitamin water, more or less. Mm -hmm. And now he's in the alcohol space with Crook and Marker, which is a spiked and sparkling ancient grain-based alcoholic beverage that's sweetened with stevia and erythritol. And we tried it. It was a little sweet, a little too sweet for me. A little too sweet for me as well. So that's the product side. But then he he basically gave a pitch about his product on stage and he brought this like black sheep up on stage, like a like an idol. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was kind of odd. He talked about how... It sits in his office and his dog won't even go into the office because it's scared of the sheep. Yeah, it was kind of an an odd thing to see up there, but uh, it was meant to illustrate that there's only one black sheep in a herd and of 100 out of 100 and uh it's a marker yeah it tied in with the whole brand but nonetheless it was kind of weird to see this like 
animal statue standing next to him the whole time while he was presenting. And then Harry, he had maybe the greatest line of all time. He got up and he's like, oh, okay, well, let, let's sit over here. I uh, don't want to disrupt your, your pet. And uh, I was in stitches when he said that. But uh, yeah, you know, what do you think of Crook and Marker and the potential for a beverage like that? I mean, it's basically a spiked seltzer. Yeah. He laid out the pitch and it was, I don't know, my take on it's, it was super polarizing. Yeah. He came out like, we're the best. We know what we're doing. We know how to reach this millennial consumer. And that may be the case, but it came off in a way that was really self-assured. Yeah. Like, I wonder what the beard distributors in the room were thinking, like, you're telling us how to run our business? Like, we've been doing this for generations. We kind of know what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things was like, don't hold a crook over our head. We got this. Yeah. It didn't really fly, I think, with a lot of people. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, they but very ambitious plans. They talked about a national rollout, which I think he said was happening like in a few months, like in March. In March. And I mean, I haven't seen a brand just go from you know, zero to a hundred like that in, in the, what we'll call the beer space, you know, let's, let's just toss it back to Jim in the sort of beer space and turn on national distribution at the flip of a switch. And I don't know. I mean, it's going to require a lot of money and it's going to require a lot of effort and a lot of brand building and marketing and, you know, all the things and a lot of buy-in from wholesalers across the country and retailers too. But he indicated that he's got, you know, some chain buy-in from retailers and, I don't know. I don't. I also. Don't, I'm not positive that the product itself is 100% there yet. Like I think it probably needs some tweaking in terms of de, uh, you know formulation and development. Two sweeteners seems like a bit much. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe tone down the sweetness. And then lastly, the M&A panel, which was uh, one of the last panels of the day on Monday, and that was really interesting. Townsend Zebold originally well formerly of First Beverage now with Cascadia, J.B. Shireman, who some of you will remember from his days at New Belgium. And then it was uh, Ippolito and Christian, uh, Ippolito Christian, I might be messing that one up, but they do a lot of the distributor deals. So it was sort of this hybrid, like, let's talk about brewery deals and supplier deals, and then let's talk about distributor deals. Uh, we'll focus on the, the you know, brewery stuff because that was sort of the most interesting. And Townsend, I think, you know, <laughs> he probably landed like the most shocking news of the of the whole conference, which was that there's an eminent deal, it sounds like, for a, uh, a brewery, a craft brewery that's going to be acquired by a cannabis company. And did he say it was a top 50 brewery? I think he... Or was that a different... I think he had sort of indicated that it could be a top 50 brewery. Yeah. And they're going to be basically buying the brewery for the assets and the ability to produce beer, and then they're going to de-alcoholize it. So that was pretty interesting to learn. And I don't know, do you have any speculation on who it might be? My guess would maybe be somewhere in New England. So we've maybe thought that it could be Long Trail. We've heard that Long Trail has been for sale for a while. And so, you know, they had that that uh, Medicator beer, the mm-hmm. CBD beer. So we've both tried that. Yeah. So that was like the first thing that came to mind. And then the, the cannabis company that's probably buying it, the only one that we could really think of was that Two Roots. And they had that uh, that announcement, gosh, was it like a month or two ago where they said they were investing like, you know, a couple hundred million dollars or something, like $150 million? I think it was. And so maybe now we know why they're, you know, they were raising all that money was to go buy a craft brewery. So that would sort of line up and I guess we'll see. 
But yeah, that was a, a really interesting panel. That was definitely like the bomb drop of all bomb drops at this thing. Yeah. And then I will say that the other interesting takeaway for me was Townsend said that there's about a billion and a half dollars in private equity investment in craft that needs to quote unquote unwind. So I think what he meant was that private equity companies have spent collectively about a billion and a half dollars to acquire all or pieces of craft brewery. So you think of companies like BrewDog or Dogfish Head that have some private equity money, Stone with VMG, Canarchy and the Firemen Group, ABV, Artisanal Brewing Ventures. So, you know, there's a lot of private equity money that's come into the space and usually their time horizon is, you know, anywhere from four to seven years. And at some point, there's got to be another transaction. So he was sort of speculating that we're about to enter this period where some of that money's got to go somewhere. They've, mm-hmm. they've either got to realize their return and you know sell it to another buyer. They've got to maybe go public, I think was one of the options. So potentially another wave of you know secondary deals to come. It's kind of an exciting time to see how it all shakes out. But you're right, we're in that, what, four to five year mark where people are starting to say, I want the return on my investment. Yeah. Yeah. You've got growth slowing, so it's definitely going to collide. Yeah. Well, kudos to uh, Harry and Jen and Jordan and uh, everyone over at Beer Business Daily for putting on a very well-run event. It was, you know, in the tents at the Dell because the room was flooded. So way to adapt and overcome another great event as always. And, uh, Looking forward to 2020 already out at the Breakers in Palm Beach. But that's a long way from now. (laughs) So right now, let's talk with Fergal Murray and get to our interview with the former Guinness brewmaster. He spent uh, 31 years as a brewmaster and ambassador for Guinness, producing and pouring perfect pints of Guinness for all sorts of international dignitaries and celebrities, including former U.S. President Barack Obama, Queen Elizabeth II, Jimmy Fallon, and Tom Cruise. During our chat, Fergal talks about the growth potential for non-alcoholic beer, future innovations within craft, the need to balance those innovation efforts with a constant focus on improving and tweaking core brands, and a whole bunch of other different topics. So let's dive right in. Here he is, Fergal Murray. All right, Chris Fernari here for Brewbound, and I'm with my colleague, Justin Kendall. And today we're welcoming to the show Fergal Murray. He's a former brewmaster for Guinness, currently a brewing and distilling consultant. And uh, this is, he's actually a recurring guest, although first time <laughs> on Brewbound. He was on our Taste Radio podcast last year. Good to see you guys again. How are you? Oh, we're great. You brought pizzas once again. It's part of the gig. <laughs> I needed a bit of that pizza this morning and that cold weather here in Boston. You should visit more often. But not with the weather like it was yesterday, <laughs> no. Um, but um, it is nice to be here again and nice to be here in the office, guys, with you guys. In the yeah. New studio. I love this. It's yeah. great. Yeah, thanks for coming by. So uh, we'll start from sort of the beginning. I know most of our listeners probably know who you are, but, you know, share your backstory with us. Us. You know, you're, you're obviously one of the most celebrated brewmasters in the entire world. You spent over 31 years with Diageo as a master brewer for Guinness, dating all the way back to 1983. Oh, those days. Yeah. What's your experience been like in the beer industry? <laughs> 83 was a long time ago, now that I think about it. Yeah. It's getting longer <laughs> every year, I suppose. Um, wow. It's been, it was, it's been an amazing journey. I love the beer business. The best people are in the beer business. It's a product that people adore to talk about. And the more I've been 
outside the world of Diageo, the more brewers and people I've met in the industry, and it's just been a phenomenal experience for me. We were inside a sort of cocoon in, in the Diageo world, so you didn't really meet too many external brewers and stuff, but in the last few years as being a consultant, it's been amazing to see what these other people's experiences are and what their vision is or how they how they talk about beer. And it was it's a different language. So I've had to sort of discover a new way of speaking about beer with the the, the sort of crafty world because they just have different visions of it and the different perspectives with, outside the corporate world, which is something you have to learn because you couldn't speak like a Diageo person in a craft brewery. You know, you've got to adjust because they wouldn't understand the sort of language I might have been using. So I've enjoyed that change. And it's brought me a different person as well. I've actually changed my own personality to understand more how I can help. You know, all that experience I had has to be useful somewhere. And I've found use for it. Hence, you know, why I'm back again with the Wachusa's Brew guys, because we're just, you know, we were involved, we collaborate and we talk beer. And from that conversation comes, you know, the new project that we're here for this week, but um, also with other brewers around the world, you know, that's what I try to do. I try to get involved in a conversation and it may not go anywhere, but sometimes it drifts into a sort of, oh, you know what, what could we do and how are you working on this one and what areas can we help? And that's what yeah. I try to do. So well, You do have a lot of experience and it ranges from, you know, brewing and sort of technical experience yeah. all the way through to marketing as, you know, a, a Guinness brewmaster ambassador. Yeah. So, I mean, like it, that's an extraordinary good point because um, what I've discovered is that, you know, you can make it, you can be brilliant at making it, but you also have to be able to communicate your brand story, your product story with the people who are going to actually drink it. And there's a different art that, um, different skill. I'm lucky enough to be, have, have had both those journeys when I was with Diageo and now that second part of the journey when I was with Diageo when I spoke about the brand has helped me help craft brewers you know recognize that you know it's great making the liquid great creating the product but you then have to go and explain what you've just done to a customer and then to a probably a consumer afterwards that that is why this is different that's why it's distinctive that's why it's unique that's why I've done it as the brewer if you know what I mean and that those types of languages are Difficult to get them across sometimes, but that's what you have to do as well in the business. I think people need to experiment on that and understand what they can do and what they can say, no matter what brewer you are. Talk about your product in a way that people actually recognize the distinctiveness, the, the elements that you've brought to it as a person yourself or the skills you've brought to it or the uniqueness of the liquid that you've created and understand how to get that message across because that will help you on the sales story on the marketing journey and build your brand equity. Seems almost impossible to do that nowadays, though. I don't think so, no. You have to create your audience and, you know, understand where your product is going to be um, loved and cherished and get that right first. I think just everybody, is, every brewery, I think, that I've sort of seen, has a, they know where their core fans are, you know, and you, you've got to work with the core fans at all times. Remind them talk to them and understand what they're thinking. And then that'll extend. They'll help you. Those fans will be your storytellers. But you've got to tell them the story first. Your evangelists. Yeah, if you, yeah. and the spokespersons. I mean, they're, they're, they're the ones that are going to talk you up and um, they're the ones that are going to give you that equity in the brand that you have or, or the liquids you have. So they're, you know, they're always useful. They're always doing something unique. They're always being innovative. They're always being creative. They're always, you know in time I experienced their beers, something like that, you know, and that story is where you need to put some time and energy in, actually, to be fair. You know, you've got to actually think about it. 
but the fans are the critical ones. You know, the, the, you know, um, in my Guinness days, it's just we used to say that your pint was as always good as the la- you know only as good as the last one you made. But if you went to a bar and somebody poured a poor Guinness, you know, it was very difficult for them to recover unless you they actually figured out because Guinness drinkers always wanted it to be perfect. And a Guinness drinker going into a bar and not being looking perfect in the glass was always a death knell to that bar. I mean, it was really, you felt like, oh, they can't be doing that. You know, you can't just get away with it. Guinness mm-hmm. couldn't be a get away, it's not a get, get away will serve. It has to be perfect. It has to look stunning each time it's done. And once you saw people who didn't believe in that, then you knew that this could be a trouble situation. You knew the volumes were going to go down. You knew that people weren't going to respect it and... You've got to always make sure that that happens constantly. How do you sort of ensure that that happens? Because we go to bars, restaurants all the time, and draft quality is such a critical issue. And it, sh- and it shouldn't be. You know, the bars that allow that to happen, need to be, they need to understand what they're there for. They're serving liquids, no matter whose it is, to people, and they should be doing it the best they can all the time, every time. If you don't do it that way, you're not going to have those customers too long. I mean, they might think you are, but you're not. You know, people will start saying, hold on a second here, this doesn't look as good as it should do. And um, the Guinness brand always had a challenge with that because it had to always be extraordinarily perfect. I mean, you had to have the head, it had to be the right size, it had to be the right delivery, it had to be the right temperature. And it was uniquely served as well because it had the double, uh, the, the double gas um, delivery system, which, you know, bars didn't always have. And trying to do it without that was impossible, you know, so... Um, all over the world, there's a challenge sometimes to get your beer served correctly, no matter where it is. I mean, get the right equipment in, you know, the right conditions. But bartenders just not, you know, being, I suppose, careful, you know, not really respecting it. That's not that's not good. You know? How much of that do you think is driven by the just amount of variety that is out there now? Because it seems to me like it would be nearly impossible for a bartender or a server at a restaurant to you know, be able to know everything about all the beers that they have on their menu, that they're supposed to explain the value propositions of these brands to customers and when they're constantly changing. And I feel like that would also carry over to just the pouring yeah, and the delivery itself. I think itself. you're dead right. I mean, it, it is a question that has to be asked. Do you really need that many beers on tap? You know, I mean, you know, it's like a, if you're ser- serving wine, I mean, do you have to have 30 reds or 40 whites or, you know what I mean? You know, it's very difficult to be on top of that knowledge at all the time. So the question should be almost, well, do we really need that many beers on tap? And if we do have that many, then we have to have a different training program. We have to have a different, um, you know, standard of bartender, server, who really understands that, you know, no matter when I go up to the tap, if it's a wheat beer or a high alcohol, you know, stout or IPA that has to be served in the right glass at the right time, the right temperature, they're going to have to figure that out. And that's a lot of training. And it is a challenge, I agree. But maybe they shouldn't have so many beers on tap. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that, you know, that's, that's the challenge that craft bars, they need to help showcase those beers. And the brewers need to, you know, respond to them as well. Well, and it's definitely like a tug of war too. I mean, it's, Absolutely. it's like you have this desire from consumers that's asking for, you know, new products and new brands and they want the next thing. Yeah. And then, you know, you have breweries that are trying to deliver on that and then the bartender's sort of caught in the middle. Yeah, and he's on any position sometimes, you know, because what does he do? You know, um, 
probably doesn't have the glassware, probably, you know, the first time the keg has arrived and, you know, it hasn't been given the training yet, but they've been told to sell it as fast as possible. It's a challenge. But again, you know, that's part of the, the joy of being in the, the craft world as well. I mean, this is where you expect it to, to be a challenge and, and hence you've got to be, be part of that. And that's the joy. It's like, you know, a good, you know, an athlete, you know, breaking through that wall, you know, going faster, going further. I mean, the beer has to be the same way. You've got to really talk it up, get out there, talk to people, you know, understand what is going on in the marketplace. I think um, feeling it, feeling what the people are saying when they get it in the bar and asking the bartenders, can you help them? You know, in lots of ways. So speaking of the marketplace, I mean, you've traveled between Ireland and the United States now. It's great to be back. Yeah, for, <laughs> for the last few years. Yeah. Uh, this is what this is the second year that you've done the project with Wachusett. This is my second project with Wachusett, yep. But you've kind of been coming back and forth yep. for the last few years, and I imagine you've probably noticed some of the changes going on in, in the American beer scene. Like, as somebody who's foreign to the U.S., but mm-hmm. still you know, has a tremendous amount of insight and knowledge about the beer space. What's been the most apparent sort of change in the American beer scene over the last few years well, to you? You're, you're still the leading craft beer nation in the world. I mean, you're still, the guys involved in are still generating extraordinary um, liquids and extraordinary opportunities to grow the, the whole category. I mean, you're still the, the best. So everybody who's out there is doing an extraordinary job. I mean, the 6,000 odd breweries now, I believe. 7,000 um, now. <laughs> well done, everybody. But they, 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 <laughs> they, you know, there's, it's great that they, the continued expansion of the craft industry. You know, hopefully people are all learning from each other uh, along that journey and all supporting it, which is part of the whole craft world that all the craft guys love to be helping each other. And there's a very open world there, and I love that. And I think that needs to be probably when you ask the question about what's going on. I still think that's there, but it could be better. You know, hmm. you need to be a little bit more corral together, more collaborations, you know, understand people. Because, you know, you don't want breweries shutting down and you don't want, you know, you, you want them to grow. So if there's somebody out there who's feeling it tough, then somebody go and help them. Because there's an awful lot of ind- people in the industry here that can actually, you know, understand the problems they're facing. And it could be easy to solve sometimes out there. You know, you won't have to, you know, just because you've had an issue doesn't mean to say it's not solvable. It's about how it was solved. And it's probably been done before. But still, um, the growth is amazing. It's interesting that the journey back to blonde lager type beers is, is beginning to rise. And I think that's probably was natural to go that way anyway, because... Seven out of every ten liquids around the world is, is is lager anyway. So, you know, that ale category was always going to be sort of suddenly stopping. And I think people are learning how to make new styles of lagers and adding their own twists to lagers are going to be a really, really exciting area. And I'm uh, really passionate about, at the moment, my, and I'm pondering a lot and talking a lot to myself and, and, and anybody I can get hold of, about the low-alc, non-alc space. I think this is extraordinary opportunity for the craft world to understand what that means as a cultural thing. It's, you know, you can own the sort of space of well-being, lifestyle, and that category of being able to have a great beer but not have the alcohol in it is just going to expand. And people who have a negative about that, I think, just need to re-ask themselves the question. And I think they will when craft guys come up with extraordinary new liquids that are going to fit into that category. Because the big guys won't risk going into, they'll do it simple, you know, basic lagery styles that they can 
take the alcohol out. But I think when the craft guys get really into that, and I'm using this generic craft guy word here, sorry, but but the, the, just to expand that whole category mm-hmm. and it'll be just explosive and it'll be benefit to everybody and the culture will change. And our journey as drinkers, you know, I love a great beer and, you know, always will you know, enjoy the great beer, but I will at times want one that doesn't actually have the alcohol in it because I'm doing something else later on or I'm picking up kids or I'm, you know, playing sports or whatever. And hence just having a non-alcoholic beer would be just, oh, wow. I love to find my moment when that's going to be in my day or week, you know, I know I ain't going to have a coffee every morning. <laughs> when should I have my zero, zero, whatever product in the week? What, what time is the day should I go for it? You know, it's, a, it's like that experience. You'll find a time. So that's the big change. And I think it's going to be next few years. That space is just going to explode. But how do you sort of change the perception that's out there? Because it's been treated, you yeah. know, back of the, the cooler yeah. penalty box drink. How do you sort of convince an American consumer that, that's not what this is anymore. Yeah, that's that's the marketing challenge, you know. I think that's the, the what is, how are we going to get that across? And I think people are making that decision consciously now by, you know, they're looking at their focus on their lifestyles, like the well-being, and but they still want to enjoy the social atmospheres of going to bars and pubs and things. But now they might be, at, be giving themselves an option. It's to get the option first. I mean, you go into a barn and you don't have, have, you don't have to have a soda. You don't have to have sparkling water, but you can have another product discover it you know it's just like it's back to the the first craft revolution stages when oh you've got something different here where's that made down the road oh geez i'll try that oh yeah wow you know those type of conversations are going to occur i think but i think we're all conscious now more as a group of people that you know maybe we don't have to always be inebriated yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, we go that far. Yeah. Except, and unless there's things like, you know, the Patriots, you know, doing what they did yesterday type thing or the other day. I mean, that what an amazing game, just a diverse, wow. I watched it, thought it was stunning. The quarter was amazing. I mean, the last quarter. And, and the, You've been spying on me in my house? I was, was you were there? Were you there? How many, how many beers did I drink? Yeah, on, I don't know. On, on I, say that, I say that would have been a busy day, all yeah. right? <laughs> Lucky it was on a Sunday, I suppose. Yeah. We had the same problem, though, over in our part of the world. We got the, we got the rugby game against the, our friends from the, the UK, England, next week, or, and we go back. So that's a real good social atmosphere around. There won't be any non-alcoholic beer that day. <laughs> <laughs> so how big do you think the non-alcoholic segment could be in the U.S.? Because it's much larger in England and you uh, know, other not, places around the world. Yeah, I, I don't know the numbers, uh, really. It's not, it, there are sporadic places around the world where it's, it's beginning to... So spike a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'd say five years' time, you could see between 10, 10%, maybe. That's been a real outstretched number, but I think you could be thinking that way. Really? Yeah. Because I mean, that I, seems I, like a lot of growth yeah, for... Fast. Yeah. yeah, in a short amount of time mm-hmm. for, for like a a category that is still just, just finding tiny, its yeah. way. Yeah, I, but I'm just really throwing it out there. I think people are going to want to look and they're going to want to be excited by it and they will be excited by it, you know? Do you see non-alc as being a, uh, or low-alc or non-alc beers being something that grows the overall beer pie or, oh, yeah. or does it cut oh, yeah. into it? Absolutely, because the, the innovation s- s- space there. So it's like, a new, it's like a new occasion. Totally. It's an entirely yeah. new yeah. thing. And, you can, and I'm, I'm just looking at the blue sky conversation here. I mean, like, it could be any flavor. I mean, you could have non-alcoholic stouts, ales, IPAs, whatever. And the alcohol just has to be taken out, but the flavors are still there. 
but you can adjust it now. You can create a new styles, a new, new, new impacts, and that discovery what consumers are looking for. The alcohol always adds value in the, in the overall context. It builds in the, the texture of the beer, the flavor of the beer. You get more body and there's more, you know, just the attributes that the, the ethanol brings in the context of the beer is always vital. Mm-hmm. But when you take it out, you got all the other stuff is still there, but you just, how do you make it enhance it and how do you f- make it feel more wonderful? Aroma is another big area, I think. We're just tipping on the the edges of how fragrances and things can be brought out of beer. You know, it's always, hence always been hop or orientated, whatever that is. But I think there's a journey, maybe a little bit blue sky in my thinking here, but other types of fragrances coming out of products and maybe the non-alc area, low-alc area, will give themselves the freedom to be using other botanicals, getting more citruses, more more natural lavenders and flower products coming through. They may all work, just like the gin products are doing. You know, they're all being distinctive on the level of botanicals that they add. Um, but the beer could be that way as well. So what's your go-to non-alk beer? Guinness have one in, in Ireland called Pure Brew, which is quite good, actually. Um, Did you I ever had, brew it? No, mm. I was never involved in that. I did brew Calibre. Mm. Way back when, if anybody remembers that product, that was one of the the first ones we did. Recently, the answer to that question, recently, I had a non-alcoholic cider from France. Beautiful, mm. stunning. A calapé, it's called. I didn't know there was non-alcoholic ciders until I got the scent, this, some guy, you know, a French scent this. Stunning, wild apple sort of cider flavor coming through. There's a Western France area, so it's sort of more of a, it's not a sweet cider, it's more of a sour, sort of a spicy cider. Beautiful. Definitely have that in the fridge. But I think it's the concept of everybody, you know, that have a six-pack, four-pack in the in the fridge, you know, just in case. There's somebody drives along and comes over to the house and you say, listen, we'd like a beer and I'm having one because I'm watching the game, but oh, I can't because I'm driving. Well, hey, hey, I got a I got a zero-zero or a, I got something in the, we'll, you know, give you that opportunity. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So beyond low-alk and non-alk products, are there... Any other innovations that you're paying close attention to? The aroma side is, I'm thinking a bit about as well, pondering about this um, um, aroma uh, um, extracts, hop extracts that are coming along now. Those products are changing a little bit. They're more specific now. You can, you know, the the CS2 extractions can get down to sort of the oils that are sort of value addable Mm -hmm. rather than the whole product. Because a hop as itself is, you know, there's a lot of wastage in you know, the context of the pro- the tannins and proteins aren't actually valuable to the, the beer process itself, but there are elements that you can get actual access to that enhance the flavor. You know, get more purity out of the hop, you know, more pure sazz sort of aroma flavor coming through. There's an area I think that's going to be interesting as well. It's probably just beyond the ethos of a lot of craft because it's more you're using products that are sort of scientifically generated, but I think there's a journey there that people I should be asking can it be value? You know, does it help the brand extend itself? So um, another one there I'm looking at. And uh, these can, these help extracts are added to the end of the process. So it's like, you know, you've, you can you could tweak, you know, the, the liquid flavor at the final stages so you're not wasting it and not throwing it away and all that sort of stuff. So those type of efficiency things are very important, I think, going forward as prices go up. I mean, European prices and ingredients have skyrocketed in the last 20, 12 months. And... Um, You've got to be very, very clever now in how do you manage your brewing processes. You can't get away with anything anymore. Like the efficiencies have to be all looked at. Yeah. I mean, I, anybody who's just using a um, grist, a case of hops or malt or whatever, and and the and, and the wastage is high, you've got to stop. You've got to think about it. You've got to ask yourself some questions. Get some advice on you know 
reducing that waste level. Otherwise, you won't be profitable is what well, you're saying? It's, 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 you're losing a lot of you know, cash that way. And, you, and it's an area you've got to consider. The bit of advice I say to myself is if you reduce your amount of innovation and spend some energy on getting your efficiencies on the core products that you make better, look at it, just go deep dive into you know, the amount you add, you know, the times you have, the, the performance of the, the utilizations, whatever, the yeast usage, instead of dreaming up something new, go back in and guess really the core of what you're brewing, what you're doing well, and put a bit of emphasis on that over the next year. And I think you'll see, reap the rewards. You don't have to be making something new every week. You know what I mean? Like, come back and just love what you're doing already. Do it better. Fergal, this is why I love interviewing you because <laughs> you create like the perfect segues every single time. And that was going to be that was well, going to be one of my questions. Well, so I'll be here every week. Yeah. We can do it now. Yeah, you can be. I can ring in. Yeah. We can make we can this Skype you in. Three man booth. Yeah. That was going to be one of my questions, though. There is such a heavy focus in the U.S. on new product innovation, yeah. like we mentioned, yeah. and this you know sort of rotator phenomenon. Yeah. And I sometimes worry that the number of rotating beers in the U.S. and the constant consumer desire for new products are yep. ultimately, you know, causing drinkers to miss out on experiencing yeah. and enjoying some really well-made beers like a Guinness, like a Sierra Pale yeah. Ale or a, or a New Belgium Fat Tire, you know, any of those core flagship beers that these established breweries have spent years perfecting. Yeah. Do you worry that brewers are spending too much time on innovation and they're not dedicating enough of their time to perfecting their core recipes and building a brand? Mm. I think they, they have to listen to the customer, you know, and go out and actually understand, you know, if my customer loves me making something new every week, I, I would say carry on doing something new every week if you can get away with it. If your customer is saying, I'm switching, you know, and, the, and the customer is always like, whatever is new, doesn't matter where it comes from new, then you should probably say to yourself, well, hold on, maybe. I don't have to be one of those guys that switches every month. I could be one of those guys that says, I'm going to perfect or I'm going to work on one or two of my products and make them better. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to put that message out because those consumers that are drinking it will pick that up and you'll be able to tell them something new. Well, we're making it better. We're doing something in, we're improving. We put a new kettle in. We put a new hop addition system in. We put a new yeast vessel in or something just so you have news to talk to them about how you've improved what you've been doing. So you're like, you opened up five years ago, you bought a kit, you turned it on, you worked it, it's made you great beer. And five years later, you realize that you should have got a better chiller or you could have been adjusting the water addition or, you know, you could be adding in salt. So you could have, so, so to communicate what you're doing that's going to make it better. Mm -hmm. And that might be a better piece of information than when I'm coming out with a new IPA next week. I don't know yet, but I think the customer, the craft guy who knows his craft beer would love to hear those stories about what his favorite brewer is doing sure. to make his beer better. Yep. So if I was blogging and talking out there I go, and, and I was running my own little brewery, I would put a little website thing out and I'd go, what we've done this week to improve the quality of our beer is one, or this year, or this month, two, three, four. Tell me what you've done to improve it. Like every, every high performance something or other comes out with something new and with an improvement. Brewer, tell me what you've done to make the beer better. You know, you've stored the yeast differently. You've bought better quality hops. You've stored them chilled. You know, you know, I put a new 
thermometer in so I can actually measure the temperature better. You know, I'm, I'm my, my, my water addition is better. Yeah. You know, I now use oxygen to help the yeast grow. You know, I mean, I'm using yeast food or whatever. There's thousands of things that could be on that list. And you could become very, very well known as the most improved product brand, maybe. That might be a journey. You know, and get, then the response comes back, you know. Um, it's, from the it's, customer. It's a great idea. I mean, I think what tends to happen is there's that information gets siloed inside of the brewery and well, internally where, people know that they're doing those things and maybe they're not communicating it to the public because well, that's maybe it's, what it's kind of confusing. It's difficult to wrap your mind around. And, right, and there's this like sort of desire to simplify things for the end consumer. Yeah. Well, but that, what you're saying is maybe I'm just maybe saying they're looking for maybe it. maybe we just haven't tried it out enough. Maybe you're right. It, some of that knowledge out there probably isn't being picked up, and probably nobody is interested. There might be a journey that says, you know, maybe I I want to let people know that I am improving. You know, I'm doing better. Yeah. And it isn't about creating the next sort of most extraordinary IPA or whatever, or I've found a new hop variety that nobody's ever used before or whatever, and, the, and now I've turned it into something. You know. But that's so fun. That is. And I, <laughs> I, and I, and I think that, that's why I said at the beginning, you know, if, you're, if every week your customer wants you to be that innovation, that person that's, you know, coming up with something new, then be that person. Don't stop being that person. But if that knowledge isn't coming back and, you know, what you're doing new isn't really helping, then maybe take an internal look and, maybe try to explain it to the, the publican or the bartender or the owner. You want to build strong, sustainable, timeless brands. That's yeah. that's the thing that yeah. keeps a brewery in business. You want to balance that with new innovative products and you know fun collaborative projects like the one you're doing with Wachusett. And you segued way in there to I mean, why am I here? Almost because I mean, that's why I go and that's why I love being part of Wachusett because they have that culture, philosophy. I mean, you go there, there is innovation in the atmosphere. They, Their their tap room has got, I don't know, 20-odd beers on, you know, and they use it as an experimental kitchen type thing. And they, yeah. you know, they're not everything goes out to trade, but they, they can they can learn there what will work in the distribution channels that they have. So that's a good place to be sometimes. And also they have the, the understanding of what quality products are about as well, which is essential, you know, and, and that's why I love working with them. So last year you did a session stout with New England hops, and this year what's the product? We did a session. Yeah, last year was a stout, which was the had to be really, I suppose, for my (laughs) background. Um, Yeah, that went very well. It seemed to go get great great response this year. These things don't come up as a plan. You know, when we this type of conversation started with myself and Christian on the phone, what will you do next? And I go, well, what, do you, what, what would you like? And these, sort of, after a few conversations, a few emails, we suddenly find ourselves in a conversation with, why don't we use a local malt this time? And um, I like, I was talking about noble hops and I was going, you know, I'd like, you know, I really want to go back to Sazas and Technangs and Halatowers. I think they're, you know, they, and how do we do that? And then I said, well, Mm, why don't we, God, God, I'd love to put some honey in. I've, have, I've always wanted to put some honey into a beer and sort of feel the honey flavors coming through because I think they're really, they can be very valuable. So we ended up going down the road of designing something that was local malt, which is actually superb, by the way. I'm so delighted to get the body. The body that comes through from the, 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 the malt character and is extraordinary. From the, the was- Which malt company? Stonepath? Yeah, did a brilliant job. Love it. And when the, when the brewer 
turned it into, you know, sensational body product. And then, then we put the honey in, little orange rind, and um, then the noble hops that gives us a nice little aroma and a little low EBU. So we came out with this Fergal's Blonde this year, which mm. is honey blonde, but it's really is... I'm very delighted with it. I have to be, I'm proud. I'm here, I'm talking about my own child here, lads, you know, but it we did well. We've done well. This is, and I like the way it's edgy and complex as well. So that's sort of like me, edgy and complex. <laughs> um, um, I'd, I'd kick myself if I didn't take a shot, though. You did a stout for the first one and a blonde for the second I know, one. I know, I know, I know. People, are, people are definitely going to call out the Guinness blonde. I knew you were going to go there because you were about the only one that ever said that to me. No, I did. It was totally uncoordinated <laughs> like that. Yeah, I know. I'll have to worry about that. I can't follow them anymore. <laughs> But mine's better and nicer and golden in color and looks extraordinary. And I and and um, sorry, guys, I didn't mean that. <laughs> but, uh, it's um, the Fergal Project is a continuous program. I'm going to have what what uses, and we'll implement some extraordinary liquids into that portfolio over the next few years. And I'm going to always try to be sort of differential bring out something unique because he does they have enough in, in innovations or themselves already out there so i'm gonna have to now be brave to come up with something new this is i'm very happy with this it's good good be just back to that one of these things going on i think the craft consumer might have been an older character five or six years ago i think the craft consumer is probably drifting down in age i think younger people are coming in they're they're, they're probably their first beers aren't going to be one of the main brewers they yep. might their first beers may be a craft beer and I think that's what you've got to, remo- you know... Might be a non-alcoholic beer. I think it should be. I think somebody should be, you know, at least one of your beers once a week should be in that zone, that low category, that area where you could... And I think the brewers now, we all got to step up and ask ourselves, can we actually do that well? Now, mm-hmm. there's going to be brewers out here listening to this who are going to go, what the hell is he talking about, beer, beer without alcohol? But just question yourself, the journey you're all on, and can you be, as a brewer, extraordinary in your low alcohol, non-alcoholic category, just like you are with your stouts, your IPAs, your lagers, whatever. There's a category to be, if we can do it, do it. And we've seen that journey change so much too, because now people are releasing seltzer, hard seltzer, getting into kombuchas, going into all these spaces. So yep. why not non-alc? Well, absolutely. I mean, look, you're creating a brand, which is your brewery brand, it can have multiple products, multiple styles, multiple packaging formats, multiple collaborations, but the fundamental brand is the quality of your overall portfolio. And in that portfolio, absolutely, have different varieties of categories. And non-alc is definitely an area that you should ask yourself the question: Can we do it? Yeah, um, it's still a journey from a consumer point of view. But will will bars stock? kegs of it. I mean, it's going to be a hard sell to get through, you know, 50 pints of, of non-alc in a week. I mean, you have to have a big turnover for that. So there is a couple of questions commercially still, but the journey's to start. Yeah. Well, somebody will figure it out if... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if we know one thing, somebody will crack the code, oh, right? Definitely. And that's what the, that's what it's about. Um, it's been exciting. So it gives somebody an opportunity. Go out there and do it, lads. You know, um, discover who's going to be that first one or the, you know, the ones that have gained the first inroads into that category and, and grow it yeah for sure well fergal we appreciate you it's working lovely, in the guys craft you guys industry. are amazing thank you boys yeah it's lovely to be here thank you so much and thanks for coming back with pizza and beer as always it's the only way to go there it is
Thank you so much for stopping by. We really appreciate the time and uh, enjoy your time in Boston. As always. Selling yeah. the Frugal Project. Thank you. Blonde Ale. Oh, beautiful. Thank you very much, guys. Cheers. All right. That was our interview with Fergal Murray. Justin, Fergal's sat down with us a couple of times now for pizza and beers. And as I mentioned, a recurring guest on, on the podcast, uh, did Taste Radio on our other site, BevNet and Nosh. So this is the first time we've had him on the Brewbound podcast. But what was your takeaway? We just keep coming back to these non-alcoholic and other type of products. And here's Fergal saying that he's very bullish on it and where it can go. And I think he said it could be as much as like 5 to 10% of the U.S. market at some point. Yeah, I think he, you know, and I, I was kind of like shocked that he thought it could get that large that quickly because he said in the next few years. But I would say that it'll probably be a slower build. But I think that, yeah, non-alcoholic products are going to come on when you think about Heineken investing, you know, $50 million behind 0.0, their non-alcoholic play, or I guess you should say alcohol-free play. And actually, Heineken was at the Beer Business Daily Summit. And, you know, that was one of the things they mentioned, like it is alcohol free. A lot of these non-alcoholic products are, you know, under 0.5 alcohol by volume and theirs is 0.03. So it's like it is virtually all the alcohol is out of there. Um, And they're investing $50 million basically into the category. And they expect other players to kind of jump in as well and and start investing in it. And I think once that happens, you're going to see a whole lot more people drinking non-alcoholic alcoholic beer more regularly. This is exactly what non-alcoholic beer needs is someone to sort of lead the charge. Heineken's stepping up. It's grown to be what, like 20% of their beer business in Russia. I think that's what was shared, you know. So as Fergal pointed out, you need those marketing dollars to really build this category that has gotten like zero attention. Yeah. When I was actually chatting with uh, Chris Kramer during the Beer Business Daily Summit, and he had mentioned that in Spain, non-alcoholic beer consumption is like 20% of the beer market there. And he had made a comment about the advertising of it because they, they have some very strict advertising laws around actual traditional beer. So these companies, they advertise their non-alcoholic beer products. And it's it's 20% of the market there, he said, which, you know, I'd have to fact check that. But regardless, like the point being, non-alcoholic beer is far more developed in a lot of international markets. And in the U.S., it's basically nothing. There's a new group of consumers and they're more health conscious and they're choosing their products differently and non-alcoholics in the set now. And if you look at what Heineken's doing, they're treating it exactly like their beer brand. They're pricing it the same. They're putting it on the shelf next to it. So if you're going to attract those consumers, they're not treating it like it's a secondary product. Right. And the other, so, you know, kind of moving on from non-alc, but the other takeaway for me was, you know, we talked a lot about innovation and like balancing your innovation efforts and this, you know, sort of, I don't know, this like desire to create new products or this like sort of anxiety that you feel like, well, I have to have a new product, you know, every week or else my consumers are not going to come back with the need to constantly look at your processes and assess the quality of your core brands and make a subtle, you know, water tweak or a hop addition tweak and, and just perfect your core beers. And brewers aren't getting the chance to do that because there's so much desire for a new, new, new and rotation. And so we talked a little bit about that. And, you know, I, I think that he's right, you know, like 
if you have a business where you can get away with a new beer every single week, great. But if you're not that, then maybe spend some more time focusing on your core brands and perfecting them. Exactly. Giving it time, letting it breathe, and really putting some you know, resources behind it to actually build it. Yeah. It seems to make sense, right? And that's inside the brew house, and then it, it's a domino effect. It plays out in the trade. And you go to these bars, and we talked about this in the interview, you go to the bars, how could you expect any of the servers to know how to properly serve a beer, what glass it needs to be in, what's the information that you're going to explain to the consumer about that beer when it changes every five days because it's a, you know, a sixth barrel that you blew through your, your 50 pints or whatever and it's, it's gone, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. Yeah, you got 60 taps or however many. He makes a great point, you know, do we really need all of these taps? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I for one don't. I like, just give me like 15 taps and curate it and I'm great. Yeah, or do some explanation. Yeah. Train your staff. Yeah, train your staff, explain what the beers are because look like... Well, we, well, we had an experience the other night at a very well-known brew pub here that was just... This is like it the, was abhorrent. Yeah, like, like, yeah, like you can't drop beers off and just expect the consumer to know what they are because there's some little tag on it that has your kitschy name. Yeah, exactly. I didn't have any clue what... I, I had a clue of what one of those beers was because it's nationally distributed. But other than that... Yeah, there's so many places along the value chain where things can fall down. And I think the big sort of takeaway in our experience out here in San Diego that one time and then mm-hmm. in our conversation with Fergal is that everybody just needs to take a little bit more responsibility and own it. Own their piece of it. If you're the bartender, you're the server, own it. You're the last person to talk to the consumer before they drink a beer. Give them the information. If you're a brewer, constantly perfect it. And it's great to talk to people like Fergal who have been doing this for so long that like you, you can lose sight of that. And he's you know reminding our listeners and reminding everyone, like don't lose sight of the core stuff that's really important. And Fergal's a free agent out there. And he has a lot that he can offer beer companies. Yeah, I mean, he's been doing this for <laughs> 30 plus years yeah. he's got to know something right exactly yeah you don't you don't pour the perfect pint of guinness for <laughs> the uh you know former u.s president and not know something about how to deliver a beer to somebody yeah yeah well it, it was great to chat with fergal always appreciate when he leaves ireland comes to uh do his his collaborative brew project with wachusett which by the way it's a blonde ale fergal's honey blonde <laughs> good. We have some crowlers of it at the office and uh, it's really good. So if you're in Massachusetts or New England, uh, I think mostly just the Boston, the greater Boston area, go try the beer. It's pretty good stuff. All right. Before we leave you all, because we are literally about to run off and catch our plane, one quick segment slash story. I mean, I guess we'll just call this like of all the gin joints. Um, <laughs> we're here on Coronado Island and we stumbled into quite possibly one of the best dive bars for people watching that I've been to in a long time. McPee's Irish Pub. Baby Boomer Central. Yeah. So Coronado Island is kind of a weird, you know, hodgepodge of people. You have a lot of military and then you also have some more affluent, you know, sort of aging baby boomer types. And they've bought their nice homes on the island and I don't know if they're retired or if they all are selling Avon, you know, skin beauty care products or uh, (laughs) acai juice or something. (laughs) But like, man, on a Saturday night, 
in Coronado at McPee's Irish Pub, they let it rip. It's like hippie jam music mixed with like some uh, yacht rock, I think. Oh, yeah. And just about every person in that bar is a character. A character, like the guy with the bucket hat. <laughs> like he looked like he just got done like pond fishing. Lester clones. There was, yeah, there was a clone of Lester Jones who actually kind of looked like maybe he was like a amateur wrestler at one time. <laughs> He had this like tight fitting shirt and he was like wearing this dry fit, you know. Yeah. I work out. Yeah, you work out. But <laughs> you're it's also ten thirty at night and you're in a dive bar. So maybe just put on a regular shirt. Yeah. Skipping leg day too. <laughs> I mean, well, speaking of leg day, he had like the classic like dad New Balance shoes. No, they oh, K-Swiss. They yeah, were K-Swiss. they were K-Swiss. They, dude, those things were so white. The shiniest white you've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, it was truly, truly great people watching. I took some notes on my phone because I wanted to remember every single person. There was the woman who came up and asked us to do an Irish accent. <laughs> and I had, I had to channel Fergal. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. And by the way, we were drinking Guinness. We were drinking Guinness, and it was a well-poured pint. The good news is that pretty much everybody in that bar was drinking a beer. Yes, they were. Like, beer was the preferred beverage of choice. I saw a couple of Irish coffees go out, but for the most part, people were drinking beer. And so I think that that actually bodes well for the beer industry as more... Uh, what did Lester say when we talked to him? Like 10,000 boomers are retiring every day. I can't remember how many, but he said at one point that we could be headed for a frugal economy as they go on fixed incomes. And they, they were spending money. Yeah, well, they were spending money. But the good news is, is that I think that actually bodes well for beer because you can go to a dive bar, you can get a you know five or six dollar beer probably a little bit cheaper than a cocktail or something. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, maybe that'll help the depletions uh, trend trend reports uh, as 10,000 boomers retire every single year at or least, every single day. At least here on the island. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, if you're ever over on Coronado, stop by uh, McPee's. It was, uh, it's great people watching, as we said. All right, that is our show for this week. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. Wherever you're listening, we are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Libsyn, and SoundCloud. If you like what we're doing, please, please, please leave us a rating and a review and share the podcast with your friends. Drop us a line over on podcast at brewbound.com if you want to be featured or if you just want to share some feedback. As always, thank you to our audio team, our guest, Fergal Murray, and everyone out there in beer world. Catch us next week for episode 22 which features an interview with Russian River Brewing co-owner Natalie Chilurzo. Until then, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.